Colossians chapter 3. Our sermon passage this morning will come from Proverbs chapter 10. But before we turn there, let's look together at Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 12 through 24. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 24. As is the Apostle Paul's way, he's laid out a rather robust, deep doctrinal statement about who Christ is and what Christ has done. Right on the heels of that really deep, rich, intellectual, theological discussion, the Apostle Paul's like, all right, now you all behave yourselves. And he gets down to sort of the nitty gritty of living out the doctrine. It's that second part that we're going to look at just now. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 24. Now the word of the Lord. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Amen. The Apostle Paul lays out our life as having, as it were, two layers. Now, don't misunderstand me. We're not dualists. But what the Apostle Paul is explaining is that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's awfully hard to do since he has no needs. Since he has no body like men. And so, how do we express or exhibit this all-consuming, all-defining love for God? Paul says, we love one another. We express our love for God by loving each other. Notice that the self-sacrificial service to God, verse 24, is expressed in our everyday, ordinary lives. Husbands, wives, children, parents, bondservants, and masters. All the relationships of life, to quote from the Covenant of Communicate Membership, Vow 5, are ordered by this principle that we are seeking first 
not those relationships, but the kingdom of God and His righteousness. There must be this tension and yet this union. The way I treat you is a direct reflection on the way I feel about God. And yet, my treatment of you cannot become my all-consuming ambition. But I must treat you according to my love of God. With that tension in mind, turn back to Proverbs chapter 10. We're going to read Proverbs chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. Proverbs chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. So far in Proverbs chapter 10, Solomon has given to his son the wisdom that he will need in order to have a healthy community. But he's also given to him the wisdom to have healthy relationships. Now in verses 22 through 30, Solomon gives to his son the wisdom for life itself. How to live as an individual in the world. Proverbs chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. You're now the word of the Lord. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. To do evil is like sport to a fool, but a man of understanding has wisdom. The fear of the Lord, I'm sorry, (laughs) the fear of the wicked will come upon him, and the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes... So is the lazy man to those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. The hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is strength for the upright, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. The righteous will never be removed. But the wicked will not inhabit the earth. Amen and amen. When I was about 14 years old, my father started coming into my bedroom in the dark of the early morning, leaning over the top rail of my upper bunk and saying, time to get up. It was about four in the morning, a little before I would yank myself with more willpower than anything else out of bed, throw on my clothes, and go to the dark kitchen. He was already seated there halfway through his first cup of coffee. I would sit down at the table, and there in the dark of the early morning at the kitchen table, we would silently sip coffee. About 4.30, we would roll out of the back door, out across the yard, out across the garden, into the dark early morning barn. You know what I'm talking about, right, Obi? This early morning dark. There all the cows and calves were waiting to be fed and to be milked. And for three hours we would empty their udders and fill their bellies and clean out their stalls. Three hours later, we're hungry, we're tired, we're ready for bed, we're ready for breakfast. And we would head home. And I remember so fondly and so warmly those three hours at the start of every day. There were such good hours. 
I was working with my dad. I was doing my father's business. And in this way, we have something of a more contemporary picture of what Jesus himself went through in the very first story we are given of him in the Gospels. That Jesus, a little younger than I was, at the age of 12, spent three days unsupervised in the temple. And when his parents found him in a panic at last, his mother says, what have you done to us? And in classic Jewish Jesus tradition, he responds with a question. What are you talking about? How did you not know where I was? Of course, I was about my father's business. This is what Solomon is laying out for his son in Proverbs chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. That a good life is a life that goes about its father's business. A life devoted to the, to the business of our father, which can be summed up in one word. Jesus. In other words, the good news for us today is that Jesus is the good life we're looking for. Jesus is the Father's business in this world. That's what He's doing. And so when we have Jesus, when we follow His words faithfully, we live a good life. Friends, Jesus is the good life. Follow His words faithfully. Now look at Proverbs with me. Notice at the very beginning, Solomon lays out a little couplet. Verse 22, the blessings of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Like all the Proverbs, this one on the face of it seems pretty straightforward and simple. The Lord blesses us, enriching our lives with good things from his gift, and there is no sorrow mixed with it. Makes sense, right? Simple and straightforward. I mean, think about the blessing of marriage. That's a blessing, right? There's no sorrow in it, right? Oops. Think about children. Psalm 127, 128. They are a blessing from the Lord. There's just no sorrow in parenting, is there? Oops. Think about power and prosperity and and, and getting promoted and rising up the rank and having success. There's no sorrow in that, right? What on earth is Solomon talking about? Can you name a blessing that has no sorrow added to it? Solomon starts out with this very simple, straightforward little proverb, but as soon as we start thinking about it, we suddenly realize it's not as simple and straightforward as we thought. Solomon is saying something very wise. And to crack this code, we're going to have to do a little thinking. In fact, we have to turn back and look at a little story. You see, there was a guy named Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. How many of you guys remember Genesis chapter 14? You see, there's this other Canaanite king, Sherdelemar. It's a great name. Don't use it on your kid. Sherdelemar is a conqueror of Canaan. And in Genesis chapter 14, he has defeated all the Canaanite kings. He's gone all up and down the Jordan River Valley and has laid waste of everybody around him. And he is the chief conquering king. He made one little mistake. He took captive this guy living in Sodom, a no-namer that he probably didn't even know he had taken captive. This guy named Lot. Lot had an uncle. And Lot's uncle, Abram, 
didn't like the situation. So he gathered together 400 men, chased down the world's first emperor, and in one battle wiped out his army, killed the king, and came marching triumphantly back to Sodom with all the spoils in tow. He has fame. He has fortune. He has lifelong glory. He is for one day the de facto king of Canaan. You know the land that God promised to him? For one split second, Abraham is holding all the land of promise achieved by conquest. And the king of Sodom knows this. He comes running out to Abram and he goes, let's make a deal. We'll split the spoil. I'll be your vassal. You be my sovereign. Let's make a covenant. And Abraham says, nope, you get it all. Because no one is going to say, I made Abraham rich. Not even Abraham. Chapter 15, verse 1. God shows up, says to Abraham, who literally just gave away ruling all the land of Canaan. Who just gave away all the spoils of war. Who just gave away all the glory of victory and triumph. God shows up to Abram and says, Abraham, Abraham, I am your reward. You see, when Solomon says that the blessings of the Lord make one rich, he doesn't mean the stuff God gives us. He means God. The blessings of the Lord are His presence. The blessings of the Lord that enrich life with no sorrow is Him. In fact, if we turn over to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we see it not in story, but in principle, the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus, Blessed be our God and Father who has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How many blessings do you have without Jesus? Zero. How many spiritual blessings have come from the Father to us in Christ Jesus? All of them. When Solomon says that the blessings of God enrich our lives with no sorrow, he means God Himself who is manifest to us. When we eat and when we drink and when we wear the things of this world, those blessings and good gifts are in and of themselves not free of sorrow. But the generosity and love that has given them is. In fact, this reverses the pattern where even if he were to visit us with hunger and thirst and nakedness, we would be no less blessed. Because the value of our lives is not in what we eat or drink or wear. Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount. But in who we know. And in our relationship to him. The blessings of the Lord are the Lord. And there is no harm in knowing him. No sorrow or hurt in his riches. Solomon to fix this principle in our hearts because we are so prone to idolatrously love the gifts of God instead of God himself, then presents us with three parables, three metaphors, verses 23 through 25. He gives us sports. We're going to like that one, aren't we? He gives us grants and he gives us storms. In verse 23, Solomon says, 
by way of example, to do evil is like a sport to a fool, but a man of understanding has wisdom. That is to say that the fool, the one who believes there is no God, Psalm 14 and 53, is the one who does evil like it's a game, like there are no lasting consequences, like sin has no significance for one's future or one's life. They sin as if there was no judge in heaven. They sin as if that evil never would return to them in punishment or judgment. What is more, to say that they do it like it's a sport means that there's a competition. They, they seek to outdo one another in evil. They seek to prosper upon the poverty of others. Surely this sounds familiar in our late great American economy. That our success comes at the expense of so many other things and so many other people. It is a sport to do evil. It also has the idea, though, of humor. They find it funny. They find it funny to hurt others. They find it funny to add sorrow to the lives of others. They find it funny to rob them of their riches. It's entertainment as well as competition. As well as meaningless. But Solomon says the man of understanding is not like this. The man who is sympathetic to others and wants to enrich the world and not the self understands that wisdom, the fear of the Lord, is actually what is governing the world. That the knowledge that God is at work in the world and at work in me and in my life. Solomon says to his son, what you need to wake up to is that we are so prone to become fixated with all the secondary earthly stuff that we lose sight of the heavenly reality behind it. This is why Jesus tells so many parables. He's trying to reconnect earth with heaven. He's trying to reconnect our vision of a daily life lived aware of God and awake to God. That we do not play games with one another as if our sins were insignificant. As if we somehow had lost the reality of the travesty of sin. Jesus did not. For in the Sermon on the Mount, inasmuch as Jesus began with a heap of blessings and blessed those who were impoverished and impressed and persecuted and said, those are rich, those have no sorrow, he likewise said in his Sermon on the Mount, if your right eye and right hand are causing you to sin, cut them out. He recognized the significance of sin. That it adds sorrow to our life and does not enrich it. He was the wise man of understanding who taught us, don't play games with sin. Don't make light of evil. Do not enrich oneself on other sorrows. Secondly, in verse 24, Solomon says that the fear of the wicked will come upon him. That which the wicked dread and worry about having, a life of sorrow, a life of pain, a life without riches, a life without fame and fortune, this is what exactly comes upon them. Do you know what your net worth is right after you exhale the last time? Zero. Just like the rest of us. Do you know what they do when they move you from the dead clothes to the burial clothes? The same thing they do to the rest of us. 
doesn't matter what size and shape you are. Doesn't matter how beautiful or physically fit you are. It comes to us all, this death. The fear of the wicked come upon him. Whatever he is living to obtain, he cannot obtain. The success, the achievement, the prosperity, the power. He fears not having it. And one day he doesn't have it. It goes away. But not so the righteous in verse 24. No, the desire of the righteous is granted. Whatever his ambition is, is dispensed to him royally, divinely by God. It is granted or gifted to him. What is that desire of the righteous? I mean, we're right on the the cutting edge of the prosperity gospel, aren't we here? You have only to be righteous and God will grant you whatever you want. Of course, if we search the scriptures, we find time and time again that the righteous says throughout the Psalms in particular, one thing I have desired, one thing for which I am longing, to behold God in his sanctuary. As Rich Mullen sang over 30 years ago, you are my one thing. This is what Jesus teaches us again in the Sermon on the Mount. That we should not desire food or drink or clothing, but we should desire the kingdom of God and His righteousness and seek it first in all our relationships of life. The desire of the righteous is to glorify and enjoy God. And that is granted. And one of the, I mentioned this to my kids this last week in family worship, in one of the greatest minds of the late 20th century in America, Bill Watterson. He's the cartoonist behind Calvin and Hobbes. As he put it, Calvin and Hobbes are having a discussion. Calvin's a six-year-old boy whose vocabulary is better than mine. And Hobbes is a stuffed tiger who can talk and eat and wrestle. Calvin says to Hobbes, hypothetically, If you could wish for anything in the world, what would you wish? And Hobbes says a tuna fish sandwich, and Calvin loses his mind. Why aren't you wishing for millions of dollars? Why aren't you wishing for great power? Why aren't you wishing for fame and for fortune and all these wonderful things on earth? The last scene is Hobbes standing in the kitchen eating a tuna fish sandwich and saying smugly, I got my wish. (laughs) Friends, the righteous get their wish. They wish for God, and they have him. Those who understand that the blessings of the Lord are Himself the Lord. Those who understand that what I want out of life is not the stuff, but the God behind it, the maker of it. I don't want all the simple beauties of creation for themselves. I want them for the beauty of the Creator who has made them. And when I understand that the greatest blessing in all of earth's blessings is the blesser, then I have exactly what I want. According to Psalm 37, we can say it this way, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you all the desires of your heart. Man, we in late 20th century America, prosperity gospel, drunk people that we are, we love that verse. All the desires of my heart? Yes, if the desire of your heart is God. Delight yourself in the Lord. If God is your desire, you always have what you desire. This is the path of contentment. This is the path of a life well lived. I see the blessings of God for what they are. Expressions of God Himself and His love. And there is no sorrow in that. 
I can say with Job, though he slay me, I will trust him. There is no sorrow in him. I understand that my sin has consequences. I understand that his gifts are about him. I desire him above all things. Verse 25 then. When the storm passes, the whirlwind comes, tornado, hurricane, decide which part of the country you're from and pick your storm of choice, a nor'easter. When the blizzard comes, when the hurricane comes, when the tornado comes, the wicked are no more. Do you know what billion dollar real estate is doing in the face of rising ocean water? Drowning. I don't care which piece of Manhattan you own. If the oceans rise, you're underwater. It's as simple as that. There's not enough money in this world to hold back the ocean's tide. There just isn't. Do you know what Washington, D.C. and Boston, Massachusetts and all the halls of power, the great U.N. over in The Hague in Europe, you know what they can do to hold back the rising ocean? Nothing. There's no power and there's no money in this world that can possibly stop a storm. When we lived in Oklahoma, there was great discussion about how to build tornado-safe housing. They came up with this wonderful technology. They built all of these great things. And I remember a wonderful interview with an engineer. And they were sitting there and they were saying, what does this shelter do? And he says, oh, it's good for an EF1. It's good for an EF2. This shelter, that'll get you through an EF3, an EF4. And finally they get to the end and they say to the engineer, what keeps you safe in an EF5? And he says, oh, we don't make anything that stays on the face of the earth in an EF5. Can't do it. The storm comes and the wicked are no more. When God breathes on the face of the earth and the hurricane comes through, the tornado comes through, the storms rise, that's it. There is no answer. But the righteous has an everlasting foundation. But there is a place someone can stand. The righteous have a safe place, a dwelling. This third metaphor by which the blessing of God is made clear to our imaginations is also picked up by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Does he not end by saying, those who hear and do my words are like the man who builds on a rock. And the storms come, and the floods rise, and his house stands firm. The righteous outlasts the storm. Not because they're so strong, not because they're so wonderful, not because they're so good, but because they're standing on Christ. But because they're firm and fixed on the rock that cannot be shaken. The everlasting foundation that endures even the world's greatest storms. This is the blessing of the Lord. It is Him. It is Him. Job is stripped in one great wind. The storm comes. He has no children. He has no wealth. He has no home. He has no business. He has no health. He sits in the ash heap alone. He has a wife. He probably wishes he didn't. And as he sits there alone, betrayed and abused, even by his friends, what is the final line? 
I came from him naked to him. I will return naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or curse God. He recognized that the blessing of the Lord is preeminently and chiefly the Lord himself. And that indeed, our sins have consequences. They bring sorrows and hurts. But God grants to us our desire that we could see him. If we, by faith, are standing on the foundation, which is Christ. Solomon then introduces a new couplet that doesn't follow the pattern. Verse 26 is an interruption in the flow of thought. As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy man to those who send them, him. You see, in verses 23 through 25, all the poetic patterns that Solomon has been using has been, notice verse 23, evil, fool, understanding, what wisdom. Verse 24, fear of the wicked, desire of the righteous. Verse 25, Wicked no more, righteous, everlasting foundation. Evil, good. Evil, good. Evil, good. These couplets are following this pattern. Verse 26 does not. There is only the negative. The vinegar to the eyes, to the teeth, smoke to the eyes, and the lazy man who sends them. That's because this is the second half of the couplet from verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. But, vinegar to the eyes and to the teeth and smoke to the eyes so is the lazy man who sends them that is to say that if the Lord were to entrust to anyone this responsibility of delivering his blessings to his people if that man were insufficient a lazy man it would be like vinegar to his teeth and smoke to his eyes how many of you drink vinegar for health I know some people who do that man it is it is great to see the face that they pull right after that goes down, isn't it? How many of you love campfires? How many of you are the smoke magnet? Wherever you go, smoke goes. And you're the one sitting there rubbing your eyes, rubbing your face. These are metaphors that we, that we get. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. Vinegar to the teeth makes us grimace. Smoke in the eyes makes us tear up and rub our face. So is the lazy man who cannot deliver the message. So is the lazy man who cannot accomplish the errand. But this couplet sits with verse 22. That the blessing of the Lord makes rich. He adds no sorrow to it. The Lord is not like the lazy man. When he blesses, He will surely bless. This is the language to Abraham in Genesis. Blessing you, I will bless you. I will surely bless you. I will most certainly bless you. He cannot disrupt his blessing. The Lord's blessing has been sent to us, according to Ephesians 1.3, by a man who is anything but lazy. In Christ, he has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places. Christ has come as a diligent one to achieve all righteousness, as he says to John the baptizer, in order to save to the uttermost, as it says in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the diligent man who is to his father not vinegar or smoke, but as his father twice said, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That is to say that the blessings of the Lord 
just as they come to us overwhelming our sin, fulfilling our desire by uniting us to God, establishing us on a foundation that cannot be moved, which is Christ. Solomon then says to his son, and you can't blame the delivery package either. This guy's not like Amazon. He's going to get you the package on time at the right place. This Christ delivers. And in the four following verses, Solomon in quick succession lays out the beautiful ways that Christ has done this. Verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. There's a fascinating little turn of phrase in this. The fear of the Lord, in contrast, verse 24, the fear of the wicked prolongs days. Our days get longer, that is to say, more numerous. The days heap up, days upon days upon days. By contrast, the years of the wicked are shortened. By reversing these terms, Solomon calls his son's attention to the fact that in our life, we need to learn to count our, Psalm 90, days. We count our days in order to set our hearts on wisdom's ways. To recognize that this earthly life is meant to be shortened, we are looking to the resurrection. The wicked aim for the achievement of the years, for the success and the accomplishments that one builds up in one's life. And he says, and it always ends too soon. The wicked, no matter how long they live, die young. But not so the righteous. Day after day after day is a brand new day. Because the righteous in Christ have begun to enter the new heavens and the new earth. Where only days count. And years just disappear. As we grow into the time of eternity, Solomon says, The fear of the Lord takes over. And we begin to live with a reverence in Christ for God in order to understand His will for our life. He says again, secondly in verse 28, that the hope of the righteous will be gladness and the expectation of the wicked will perish. This too is parallel to verse 24. That the hope of the righteous is gladness. What he longs for is the joy of his Father. He has it in Christ. The expectation of the wicked perishes. What he longs for and anticipates, this prosperity, ends. But then in verse 29, the way of the Lord is strength for the upright, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. Solomon, in this contrast, notes that the way of the Lord is the strength of us. What does he mean by this way of the Lord? Solomon here speaks of both that law which was given in Moses, which is called the way of the Lord, but also its completion and fulfillment in Christ, who said in John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is our strength for the upright, the one who steadies our feet and bears us along in order to accomplish what we are doing in this life. Destruction cuts short the workers of iniquity, They run out of energy. They run out of time. There's always another book to read. There's always another page to write. There's always another email to send. There's always more to do. It never ends. But not so for those who are upright. 
They walk in the way of the Lord, beginning their lives, not ending, with the refrain of Christ from the cross. It is finished. We begin to live when we grasp the truth. It is finished. Life begins with this realization that the way of the Lord is strength for us. Jesus is His way. The way we come to Him. The way we live with Him. And so Solomon's final vision for his son in verse 30 is that the righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not inhabit the earth. This is an uncomfortable and unusual turn of phrase. The righteous will not be removed. He cannot mean we escape death, but rather through Christ and the resurrection, we live on after death. What is more, the wicked will not inhabit the earth is almost the inversion of how it is normally said. You guys have heard the refrain, it's from Psalm 37 again, in which in Psalm 37 the psalmist says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Of course, we know it more famously from that text which has been hovering in the background of our passage. The Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus says to his disciples, blessed, 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 blessed. The meek are blessed, for they shall inherit the earth. What Jesus is putting into the ears of his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount is what Solomon dripped into the mind of his son. In Proverbs chapter 10. The blessed life is the life that is in fellowship with God. That is in relationship with God. You know what's so incredibly exciting about a a 4am wake up call on the farm? Sleep deprivation. Man, I love that. You know what's so exciting? Three hours of taking care of ungrateful, disregarding cows. Waiting till I can only eat after they're taken care of first. Yeah, I loved that. You you know it was so wonderful? Not only the hunger, doing it in the rain. Doing it in the snow. Doing it in the burning heat. Doing it in the black of night. No, this wasn't what made life so good, was it? It was being with my father. And doing his business. Solomon says to his son, You have so many things in your life you're doing. Are you doing them with your father? Or are we all little fools who show up like little atheists whenever we have something to do and forget that we are to be doing it with God. The blessing of God is God Himself. The messenger of blessing is God Himself. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Solomon says to his son, this is the good life. The life that receives God's blessings as Himself in Christ. And then lives in the fullness of that friendship and of that fellowship. You were not put here to just drink up all the good things of creation ignorant of the goodness of the Creator. 
no matter what the American commercial economy is about to tell you for the next two months. The advertisers are wrong. You were not put here to buy and to spend and to purchase and to acquire. You were put here to live and to live with God. And Jesus is that good life. So follow this word closely. Follow this word faithfully. And the word is focus on God in Christ. Jesus is the good life. Follow his word faithfully. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day, for the wisdom of Solomon. We thank you for the treasures that he has left for us and for his son. We thank you for that son of Solomon who rose up in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man. And who, in whose union we can now live wisely. And pray that you would write these truths upon our hearts and upon our minds. That we might live this week and indeed this life in union with Christ. With a focus on our Father. Knowing this is our Father's world. Knowing that this is our Father's church. That this is our Father's life. And we are here to enjoy it with Him. Set our hearts on this truth, O God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's...